Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Proverbs, chapter 30. Uh, before we get into the text, just a couple things to mention. If you are um, a newcomer to the church, you've just been coming for a little while, want to know a little more about it, my wife and I are going to be having a visitor's lunch next Sunday after service. So... Um, we would love to have you come and join us. We'll get together about 1 o'clock, be done by about 3 o'clock, and just hang out and have some good food and get to know each other a little better. So we would love to have you. Um, if you're a college student, you're welcome as well. But if you're new and you just want to know more about the church, this would be a good thing. Uh, we just need to know how many are coming. We've got sign-up sheets out on the Welcome Center, so if you just please sign up. Uh, and today actually is the last chance to do that because we need to start getting a count on how many are going to be here. So that's next Sunday after service. Also, if you're interested in maybe taking the next step, that is becoming a member here at New Life. And so this would be maybe for those of you who have been coming here for a little while, um, we have an opportunity for that as well. We have an Exploring New Life class that will be starting um, October 1st, I think, um, early October. And um, this is like a six, seven-week Sunday school class or discipleship class. It'll start at 9 a.m., be done at about 10 or a little after 10. And um, there's certainly no obligation for you to join the church by taking this class, but this is the first step that you need to take in order to do that. And if you're just curious, again, more about our doctrine and practices and mission and vision, that would be the thing to do. So, again, we need you to sign up for that as well, Exploring New Life class. Those sign-up sheets are all there at the Welcome Center. Well, we are <coughs> continuing our way through a um, study of the book of Proverbs. And we've been considering a number of different topics, very kind of practical topics. Well, let's hope that that doesn't happen again. Um, you want to turn down my, my volume just a second here? I think it's the connection here on my belt. So, um, here, I'm just going to use this. If you have an alternative, just come on up. But for now, I'll, I'll use this. I have this horribly embarrassing problem every time, and that is that the wire gets caught inside my pants and I can't get the mic out. I can't believe this is happening in front of everybody. Okay, well, hopefully you can all hear. So anyway, we are continuing here through um, our study of the book of Proverbs. We've been looking at um, a, a lot of very practical topics. That's why the subtitle for this series is Extraordinary Living for Ordinary People. The Proverbs has a lot to say 
uh, about how we live ordinary lives, but helps us to live in, in a different way because of the wisdom that's given to us here in, in the Proverbs. So we've been looking at topics like words, how do we use our words, um, the problem of anger that some of us have, uh, the difference between pride and humility, the difference between hard work and laziness. We talked about that last week. Today's topic is a little bit different just because it's something that I, I think is um, just more maybe meaningful to a lot of us. It's, it's a topic that a lot of us think about a lot. It's a topic that worries a lot of us. Uh, it's a topic that keeps a lot of us up at night. It's a topic that actually is the one of the top reasons why marriages fail. It's one of the most common reasons for marital discord and tension. Uh, it's a topic that our culture and our world tends to tell us is the most important thing that we should pursue, but instinctively we kind of know that that's not, abs uh, not true, but we kind of wrestle with this. We're talking about something that I think all of us think about on some kind of regular basis. J.C. Ryle is a great uh, British preacher about our topic this morning. He says there's trouble in getting it, there's anxiety in keeping it, there's temptation in using it, there is guilt in abusing it, and there is sorrow in losing it. <laughs> so maybe you know what I'm talking about. Money. Money. Riches. Wealth. That's what we're going to consider here this morning, this thing that tends to keep a lot of us up at night, worrying, do I have enough money? Am I going to be able to pay the bills? Do I have enough for retirement? Can I help my kids go to college? Am I going to be able to pay for tuition next semester? Money. Now, there are some who think the church talks a little too much about money. Uh, there are others who think the church doesn't talk enough about money, but one thing's for sure, there's no way you can go through a sermon series on the book of Proverbs and not talk about money because the Proverbs are filled with wise sayings to us about how we deal with money. So we're going to begin by looking at this text in Proverbs chapter 30 verses 7 through 9. Uh, this is actually the only prayer that exists in all the book of Proverbs. It's a prayer offered by a guy named Agur, uh, it's not written by Solomon, but Agur, we don't really know a lot about Agur, um, but um, he helps us strike a very healthy balance with regard to our perspective on money, and this will serve as a launching pad to kind of get us into the book of Proverbs as we look at a number of different Proverbs uh, on this topic. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Okay, so here's, uh, the, the prayer has been going on, and then here in Agur's prayer, he says this, Two things I ask of you, God, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Our God, we ask by your spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things 
in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what an unusual prayer this is, huh? This is... Um, Um, very unusual prayer, right? Here, here is this guy, Ag, you're saying, on, on the one hand, oh, Lord, please don't make me poor. And so, you know, that's something that we can identify with, I think. Maybe some of us have prayed that before. Oh, Lord, don't make me poor. Could maintain a little continuity while I change this, but it didn't work, so thanks for your patience. Okay, how's that? Is that better? Good? You can hear it? All right. Um, so, th this prayer here in Proverbs 30, um, Agir says, um, Lord, keep me from poverty. And again, so that's something that we can probably identify with, but he also says, oh God, keep me from riches. Now, I wonder how many of you have prayed that recently or any time. Oh, Lord, please don't make me rich. Oh, God, please don't give me lots of money. Please don't give me a nice home and nice cars. Uh, you know, we generally, we don't, don't do that. But that's Agur's prayer. That's a prayer of wisdom here that we see in Proverbs 30. And so we're going to see a little bit um, about why he would say that. Um, but let's just kind of look at a number of different Proverbs to see if we can understand the wisdom that the Bible has for us here with regard to money. The first thing I want to talk about here is how to view your money, just, just how, to, how to regard it, um, because there are different extremes when it comes to, to money. You know, there are some people who overvalue money. They, they see money as the, the key to happiness. They, they see money as something that should be sought at all costs. It's just the primary goal for them in their lives that's overvaluing money. But then there are others who kind of undervalue money, really. I mean, there are people even in the church who see money as something that is intrinsically evil. Uh, there are some people who see money as something that's unspiritual by its very nature, and so um, they don't give a very high regard to money, and uh, they may see it as only something to be given away as quickly as, as they can. But I think the Proverbs give us a view of money that's something more in between the two. It's a little more balanced. And so let's look at this. First of all, we see this, that money can be a great blessing, according to the Proverbs. Money can be a great blessing. Chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. I mean, look at that passage. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. It is God who makes certain people rich. And the first line is contrasted with the second line. The second line says there's no sorrow with it. The implication is that when God gives money, he gives money at least in part to give happiness. I mean, you know, we know we're not supposed to value money too much, but let's just be honest. When we have money, we're excited about it. I mean, money does, to an extent, make life easier. Let, let's not deny that. The Proverbs don't deny that. The Proverbs, in many cases, talk highly about money. And, and friends, it's just, it's, it's okay, you know, for a Christian 
to want to make enough money to have a nice home for his or her family. It's okay, Christian, for you to want to have enough money to buy a car that's going to be reliable for you and for your spouse and for your kids to get from point A to point B. It's okay for you to desire to make enough money so that you have um, a rainy day fund, so that you've got money put aside to help you when things go bad, so that you can look forward to some kind of retirement when you're not able to work anymore. Christians shouldn't feel guilty about trying to make money. Okay, now it's a little different than just being obsessed with money, but it, the statement I just said, as far as it goes, is true, and the Proverbs would affirm this. You see, money in itself is not a bad thing. This is where a lot of Christians go wrong. We sometimes ascribe moral value to things. Money is a thing. Money isn't good or bad any more than a football or a tree or a coffee mug is good or bad. Now, they can be good or bad in terms of how they fulfill their function, but I'm speaking morally. Money is a thing. It's not good or bad. The problem is not what money is, it's who we are as fallen creatures, as sinners who tend to make idols of things in creation, and certainly money is probably the top of the list in terms of our temptation of making idols. But again, we're seeking a balance here, and it's clear from the Proverbs that riches are a blessing from God. Here's another example, chapter 15, verse 6, in the house of the righteous there is much treasure but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. So the righteous person, the godly person, according to this proverb, will make money, will be blessed and provided for by God. Now, here's a question that maybe some of you are asking, and that I certainly asked as I was looking at these passages. Is this teaching a prosperity gospel? Because it kind of sounds like it is, doesn't it? Prosperity gospel, that's this idea, teaching that you'll find in some churches that says this, that if you just believe enough, if you have strong enough faith, God will make you rich. That that's what every single Christian is entitled to. As long as that person believes, lives a righteous life, that person can count on God enriching them. And some go even further and say that God will guarantee you even perfect health know, and will heal all your diseases uh, in this life. That's a prosperity gospel. And you look at some of these proverbs, and it kind of seems that way, doesn't it? In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. So what do we say to this? My answer, of course, is no. This is not teaching a prosperity gospel. A, a number of different reasons why. Qu quickly, first of all, the proverbs, as I've been telling you throughout this series, the proverbs are not promises necessarily. They're not saying do this and this will be the absolute outcome in every occasion. It's not saying have faith, live a righteous life and you will be rich. It's saying that's what often happens simply because that's the way God has designed the world. That when we live righteously in accordance with God's dictates and commands that generally speaking results in success, in blessing in some level of prosperity. So we can't misread the Proverbs and take these as promises that obtain in every situation. But as we look through the Bible as a whole, we see other reasons to say no to this question. I mean, first of all, think of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the most righteous man who's ever lived, 
a man who had faith that his father would fulfill his promises to him. And yet, Jesus was a man who lived in virtual poverty. He had no place to lay his head, the scripture says. He was a man acquainted with grief and suffering. If ever there was somebody who should have had no problems in his life, it would have been Jesus. But his life was actually filled with various problems. So the life of Jesus doesn't support a prosperity gospel message. But also, I would say this, you know what the test of true faith is? The prosperity gospel says the test of true faith is how much stuff you have. The test of true faith is not clinging to Jesus when you have everything, but clinging to Jesus when you have nothing. That's real faith. It's not that we don't rejoice and give thanks to God when he blesses us with riches, but boy, anybody can do that. But clinging to Jesus when your bank account is low is a very different thing. And then the other thing I would say this is the prosperity gospel doesn't really promise enough. Prosperity gospel says, oh, you'll have lots of money so you can have a nice house. Well, you know what the gospel promises to the righteous? That you will inherit the earth. Prosperity gospel says, oh, you can expect healing in this life. Well, the gospel, the true gospel promises resurrection from the dead, glorified bodies when Jesus comes again. That's a lot better than temporary healing in this world, and inheriting the earth is a whole lot better than a nice house. So the pure gospel is better than a prosperity gospel, which is not what's being taught in Proverbs. So money can be a great blessing. Proverbs clearly teach it. But then there's the balance. Money can be a great curse. That's also true. So look back at our text here in chapter 30, verse 9, where the writer says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full. If you give me riches, it could happen that I'll be full and I'll deny you, Lord. And, and I'll begin to say, who are you? I used to know you, but I don't anymore. My heart is so filled with my material possessions that I have no regard for God. That's what can happen. That's what riches can do. John Calvin said this, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. It's very common in cultures that when prosperity goes up, faith in God tends to go down. I mean, almost a direct correlation between the two. The more we have, the more temporal, physical pleasures and possessions we have, the more we tend to think that we don't need God because our immediate needs are mentioned, uh, met and we don't look beyond those things uh, to the transcendent or to God. This is something else the prosperity gospel just totally misses. The prosperity gospel misses that sometimes money can be a curse. Sometimes money can make your life worse, not better. There's a great example of this in a movie called A Simple Plan, uh, late 90s, I think. And in this movie, there are uh, two or three guys and they're friends. I think a couple of them are brothers. They um, are kind of walking through the woods and they come across this plane. The plane's crashed and they start kind of rooting through the plane and they find millions of dollars in this plane. And so they start thinking, what do we do? And they say, well, let's report it to the authorities. But then they start thinking, wait a minute, we can keep this money and nobody will know. 
And so they say, yeah. So there's three guys, and they say, okay, let's keep it, and we'll divide it among ourselves. But let's keep it here for right now just to, um, you know, make sure everything pans out okay. And so they start developing this plan about how to divide up the money, and they tell their wives, and their wives get in on it, and all of a sudden, just things start to deteriorate, and they start getting suspicious of each other, and they start plotting against each other. They start worrying that the others are going to take more than their fair share. They start getting paranoid. And the movie, I mean, it's just really disturbing. It just unravels to the point where they're killing each other. And there's one point in the film where the main character is talking with his wife about the fact that an FBI agent is coming into town to explore what happened to this lost money. And he's starting to worry that maybe this FBI agent is going to come to him and start asking him some questions. And this guy is, by the way, just you know, a family man, a hard worker, just a solid citizen. That's how the movie opens, showing you what a decent guy this is. But at this point in the movie where he's talking to his wife about this FBI agent, he's saying, you know, they're, they're going to suspect me. And the wife says to him, nobody would ever believe you'd be capable of doing what you've done. She's saying, no one's going to suspect you of this because you're such a good guy. No one would think that you were capable of doing the things that you've done. Now, what made him capable of doing those things? Money. The presence of money, the temptation of coveting money. And so that's part of what is being hinted at here in verse 9. With riches comes this tendency to deny the Lord and to do even worse. Friends, are you in a place right now where you're just resenting the fact that you don't have more money? Are you in a place where you're looking at others who have more than you and you're envious of them? You're angry at God? because you don't have more. But let me ask you to consider that maybe the fact that you don't have more money is God's blessing to you. Maybe by keeping money from you, God is protecting your heart, keeping you close to him. I mean, I, I don't know, if I was a millionaire, I think I'd probably destroy myself with that money. I just don't think it would work with me. I don't handle money well. And yeah, there's part of me that wants to have more money. Everybody feels that way. But I try to bring myself back to what I'm telling you today to realize money can be a curse and it can destroy you. And so one more proverb here on this point, better is a little, not much money, with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Much better to be close to God and poor than to be far from him and rich. So how do you view your money? Great blessing on the one hand can be a great curse on the other. Secondly, how to use your money. Let's consider that. The Proverbs are wonderful. They give so much practical instruction. How to use money. Now, there's instruction here for us, and I want to say at the outset that we shouldn't look at these Proverbs as an opportunity to feel guilty about the way we use our money. Because all of us fall short of what is set forth for us in the scriptures. These instructions here are given to us so that we will not worry about money. These proverbs are given to us so that we'll sleep well at night with regard to our money as we follow the advice that we're given here 
in the Proverbs. So I got four quick things here. We could do many more, but just four. Make it slowly, the Proverbs would say. 13 verse 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. See, there's a temptation among a lot of us to want to try to make a lot of money quickly, and in particular to make it by bypassing God's ordinary means for making money, which is work. I mean, that's the way typically it should happen. You work and you make money. And notice how the proverb is worded here, little by little. It doesn't talk about someone making a lot of money. It's someone making a little money. But the person is willing to make little by little over time, slowly putting that money away and watching it increase. That's God's wisdom for how to make money. Do it slowly. Don't look for the get-rich-quick scheme. I went on the Internet to look to see if these things actually exist, and sure enough, they do. 60 awesome ways to make money without a job. I found one. Another one, how to make money without doing anything, it said. And, you know, some of us, well, that sounds kind of attractive. Maybe that's why some of us gamble. Maybe that's why we play the lottery sometimes. What we want is money quickly, right now, without work, without the effort. Now, of course, that does happen sometimes, but ordinarily it doesn't. Don't look for the get-rich-quick scheme. Make it little by little, and it will grow. Secondly, earn it honestly. Chapter 11, verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A false balance, a false scale. Uh, what would happen in this agrarian economy that existed at the time of Proverbs is that when people were buying and selling grain, for instance, or, or silver, they could adjust their scales so that as they received um, money for grain or silver, that they could adjust it so that the scale would indicate that the customer is getting more than he actually is. Or you could do it the other way around and adjust the scale so that the money that you're paying will actually get you more than you're actually paying for. And that happened very frequently. That's a false balance. And what the Proverbs are saying is that this is a serious thing. This is something that displeases God significantly. Do you see the word that's used? Abomination. That's an abomination to God to seek to earn money dishonestly. So we see this in a, a, a number of ways. You know, we've got hidden fees. You end up paying for something you didn't really know you had to. False advertisement. Anytime you promise something for money and you give less than you agreed to, that's dishonesty and an abomination to God. Earn your money honestly. Second, or thirdly, give it generously. The Proverbs are very clear in encouraging, <coughs> encouraging God's people to be generous in giving. And so this shows up in two ways. First of all, chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The first fruits of your produce. This was direction given to the people of God in Israel to take the first production from their vineyard off the top and give it to the Lord. That is, give it to the temple. In other words, don't 
spend your resources on everything else and then whatever you have left over, offer that to the Lord. No, the first fruits off the top of your produce goes to the temple. And I think the equivalent for us today is that the first fruits of your income should go to your church. The tithing principle is at work here. But it's not just giving to the church or the temple, but we also see this in chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So it's not just giving to your church, but having enough on top of what you give to your church to give to the needy. I mean, do you have some kind of plan for how you're going to use at least some of your money to bless the poor? We pass the plate here at New Life the first Sunday of every month for the regular offering, but we also, with that, pass the plate for our mercy fund and encourage you to contribute to that because that's the resource that we use to help the needy in our congregation. We do have occasions where people in our congregation can't pay the bills, and we want to help them. And we also, as best as we can, try to help people in the community who call on us for help. But we can only help to the extent that we have a mercy fund to use to help them. And so the first Sunday of every month, I would encourage you to mark that on your calendar so that you can give to the poor in that way. The last thing is, how to use money is to borrow it sparingly. Chapter 22, verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The borrower, the one who is in debt to the person lending the money becomes a slave. Now, the Bible, I do not believe, forbids absolutely debt or borrowing money. But the Bible does strongly discourage doing it with regularity, and the Bible strongly encourages us to pay off our debts as soon as we can. That, that is your obligation. Now, I know we have students here, a lot of students who have student debt. I would just encourage you not to look for shortcuts to kind of get out from under that, but to pay back what you owe. That's how the Scripture would encourage us. Be careful about debt. If you're in debt, never take on more debt until you have finished the debt that you have. Examine your spending habits to make sure that you're not spending more than you're taking in so that debt doesn't strangle you and you become a slave to the one lending you money. So four points here about how to use your money. And again, there are many more in the book of Proverbs, but again, these are given to you so that as you employ these wisdom steps, you'll be able to sleep at night. You won't be mastered by your money. And so that's the question that all these bring up. How you use your money begs this question. Are you master of your money or does your money master you? Are you a slave to your money? Or is your money a slave that is a tool that you are using? Does money rule you or do you rule your money? And that brings us to our last point. How not to be ruled by your money? How do we get to a point where money doesn't enslave us, doesn't become an idol, doesn't keep us up at night? 
doesn't make us preoccupied. Because it's true, isn't it? Money seems to have a strange power over us. We have it on our money. In God we trust, but really it's more like in money we trust that we place over God. John Piper defined greed like this. Greed is when you want something so much that you lose your contentment in God. That's when you know you're being ruled by something or you're being ruled by your money. You want it so much that you have no joy anymore in the goodness of the gospel. So how do we not do that? How do we keep money in its proper place? So two things here. Realize, first of all, that money has no ultimate staying power. Look at this passage in chapter 23. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. I mean, isn't that true? Money is so hard to hang on to. Remember what J.C. Ryle said. There's anxiety in keeping it. There's guilt in abusing it. There's sorrow in losing it. And it's so easy, isn't it, to lose it. It just goes away. It flies away. I, I never cease to be amazed at how whenever I look at my checking account, there's always less in there than I thought. It almost always happens. Either you're spending money or someone is taking your money. You've got bills coming in. You've got insurance payments to pay, and they always get higher. You've got to pay the bank. There's interest on your loan. The government, city, state, and federal all want your money, and they're all going to take your money. Your spouse wants money. Your children want your money. Everybody wants your money. And it's really hard to hang on to. And even when we spend money, we get things. Even the things that we get, they lose their appeal, right? Here's a great exercise. Go home and open up one of your closets. And look at all this stuff in there that you thought you had to have. And now they're getting ready for the yard sale. Because the value of it, it just sprouts wings and leaves. It's gone. It's just a good thing to keep in mind. The Proverbs are reminding us. Money can be a great blessing, yes, but it doesn't have staying power. But more importantly, money has no saving power. That's the most important thing to hang on to and to remember about money. It can't save you. Look what it says here in chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The day of wrath. What is that? That's, that's judgment day. That's the day when you meet your creator. That day when you're lying in that hospital bed and your life is slipping away and you know you are moments away from meeting God. And maybe you're starting to wonder, what is going to happen? Where am I going as I leave this earth. Those questions are going on in your mind. You know what? Your money has no benefit for you at that moment. It has zero value. You might say, well, it pays my hospital bills. I'll be able to leave money for my, friend, for my children. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about for you. As you're getting ready to meet God, your money means nothing in that moment. Nothing. No value. 
What you need is not money in that day. You need righteousness. That's the only thing that will help you as you get ready to pass in to the next life. And righteousness is not something that can be bought with your money. And it can't be earned by your good deeds. It can't be purchased by your morality. It can only be received by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only hope for you to have righteousness. Philippians 3 says this, Paul, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That's what you need on Judgment Day, and it comes through faith. It's a perfect song for us to sing to close this message. My worth is not in what I own. And to really grasp that, to really grasp that my worth is not in what I own. It's not in flesh and something bone, I think, is what the first verse says. But my worth is found only in the love of God for me at the cross. That, that's where we find our ultimate hope for this life and the next life. And that's the only way that I know of to free ourselves from being ruled by money. And we're about to come to the table here to hear more about this glorious gospel, but let's pray and let's sing before we come to the table. God in heaven, we thank you that you have been generous to us in how you've blessed us with the money and the resources we have. Father, help us to use our money wisely, and God in heaven, protect us from being ruled by our money, but help us to find our worth only in Jesus our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.